Here is Jesus uh, for President Week 4. It's Christian. Good yeah. to see you all. By the way, uh, just in case you don't uh, know, when we say Kid Zone, we have both, both uh, uh, kindergarten through uh, fifth grade. By the way, many of you have uh, are even three and four year old class, or four and five year old class. Many of you are going, hey, I got a two and three year old. I'm ready to get rid of them for an hour or so. We're working on that. Hopefully in December we'll be able to kind of re-expand uh, back into some, some kind of an, another option for additional uh, children's ministry. One of the things that's keeping us from that is actually um, volunteers. And we understand no pressure for you if you've been a volunteer in the past and don't, don't feel comfortable. But we're, we're working on volunteers for that. That's two and three-year-olds. So that's kind of right now four all the way through fifth grade and then also middle school that's sixth to eighth grade while we talk in here they're dismissed and they get to go into a middle school class and kind of have a um a more appropriate uh, conversation for them uh in light of just uh, how we teach and uh right now it's kind of complicated right in terms of the vitriol out there or in the middle of a, a pretty complicated election season and <laughs> You guys are so gracious to me. Y'all send me so many emails and articles to read. Um, so I am well caught up on, on all the political happenings. And so what we've been doing here is we've been kind of working through uh, Jesus' role in our current political climate. And by that I mean reimagining and refocusing more than imagining uh, the coming kingdom as the one by which we participate in and dwell in and uh, pray for the kingdom of Jesus as opposed to the kingdoms of our politics in America, red state, blue state, donkey, and elephant. We're trying to sort through how do we do that well. And what I hope happens today, okay, um, I certainly hope that uh, this would uh, help you make some decisions on how you participate in the political culture of our country. I hope that this will actually give you a grid today to help you make some decisions on how to vote and even who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I certainly hope today you get some clarity on that to kind of spend the next uh, week or so praying and asking the Lord to reveal uh, what it is he'd have you to do. So I'm going to give you a matrix. It'll be worth your time, some tangible things. But the other thing that I hope happens as a result of this, okay, is I hope you actually could potentially see um, other people in our church and community and why they might think, view, uh, think differently, view uh, differently, vote differently than you, right? One of the things that's very important when we think about what Jesus came to establish 2,000 years ago, he decided in the middle of kind of a, a really overwhelming moment, right before he's about to get arrested, brutally beaten, and uh, tried for, you know, blasphemy. You know, he gets murdered for saying that he's the son of God, the king of this world, right? Right before all that's about to happen, he actually pauses and he prays. You want to hear what he prays about? He prays for you and I. And he actually prays that somehow we would be unified. As if somehow he would know that over the next couple thousand years, there would be issues in our world that would divide us. And so he decides to pause for a moment. History captures it. And he prays for unity, particularly for his followers. And right now, I am deeply concerned at the lack of unity in the American church, even candidly, the lack of unity in our congregation and you have to spend too much time on Facebook to see the complications of this. And um, we've seen people on, on all aisles declare, "You can't be a Christian and vote for blank," right? As if a candidate holds the monopoly on Christianity. And don't get too offended yet. I promise I'll offend you more later. So I want to hold that up for a little. I'm just a joke, probably. But 
I do hope as we sort through this, maybe God will give us eyes to see what's going on, give us some um, practical steps, so be worth your time. So what we've been doing for a while, and, and I've gotten some questions on this, and I think it's really good questions, I appreciate it, is okay, we're on week four of Jesus for president, and we haven't even started talking about the issues yet, right? Immigration, and economic issues, and health care issues, and you know, pro-life issues, all those kind of things, right? We haven't even started talking about that. When are we actually, oh, you haven't even gotten to racism either. Like, when are you actually going to hit those issues? And don't worry, today I'll feed you baby birds. We're going to hit all the issues. Um, but there's been a reason why it's taken this long to get to it, and it has to do with the way by which we view God's Scripture. Um, Psalm and Proverbs gives us some understanding, particularly Psalm tells us that his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path, meaning if we really want some clarity on what we should be participating in, where we should be walking, what our plans and steps should look like, the way in which we find those is actually not through great, clever uh, uh, ideas or listening to your favorite pundits explain to you what to do, right? The way by which we find clarity and certainty is actually through God's Word. It's a lamp to our feet. And what's so great about looking for certainty and truth is there's actually a, a book of the Bible that's all written just for that reason, just so we could have certainty of the things we've been taught. And we've been learning about this book of the Bible for uh, months now. And uh, it's called the Gospel of Luke, right? Gospel of Luke here. Oh, sorry, Luke. Um, Gospel of Luke, what you got to know about Luke is Luke was a scientist and doctor, physician, turned investigative journalist. So he leaves his medical practice. This is true. This isn't make-believe. This isn't folklore, myth, or legend. He leaves his medical practice to go become a PI, a private investigator, where he tells us in the beginning of his book that he spent, I don't know, years, if not a decade, reading all the written documents about Jesus, uh, listening to all the eyewitness accounts, and going and sitting before all the oral remarks about Jesus. And he captures them all, and he puts them in an orderly fashion. The reason he does it is because of this guy named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, we know because he was called most excellent Theophilus. That is a political term, right? And so he was highly revered. He was influential and uh, affluential. And he hires Luke. This is all true. Hires Luke to go and investigate the story of Jesus. The reason being is because more than likely Theophilus was a Roman government official. That's why Luke calls him the most excellent in the book of Acts. He was a Roman government official who is at a predicament. You see, as a, a Roman official with lots of money and power, the way by which you kept your money and power is you pleased the people above you, and the person above him at the highest level was Caesar. And Theophilus was required to declare that Caesar is Lord. Now, Theophilus is smart. Just like all the other people there, they knew that Caesar wasn't really Lord. They knew he wasn't really uh, divine, and yet they, out of their worship of security and comfort and safety, they were making these declarations. So Theophilus more than likely is wondering, hey, can I continue to say that? Especially now that there's this guy named Jesus who showed up and made all sorts of declarations, and Jesus is actually declaring that he is Lord. His disciples are saying, he is Lord. These first century disciples are declaring that he was murdered for declaring his Lord, and then came back to life, and Theophilus is watching all around him. This movement of thousands and then millions of people who were giving up their life, giving up their freedom, giving up their political plans, their influence, their affluence, to follow Jesus to the point of death. And so Theophilus is wondering at some point if he should change his allegiance. And with a guy with money and time, he hires Luke to go and investigate it. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1, 
that he wrote all that he did. Basically, you can see it as a dissertation or a thesis. Years of research. He writes it all. And this is what he says. He says he writes it so that to Theophilus and us, that we can have certainty about the things that have been taught. So we started months back going, okay, let's start working through this story of Luke so that we could get to a point where we could use God's word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so it's just taken us this long to get to a place where we could see how this matters for us politically, matters for us as a nation. And so we've just been charting through it week after week after week. And so if you can imagine, Luke's writing the story and he is establishing, long before Jesus comes and does all these miraculous things, you see that Jesus is kind of establishing his kingdom. And so Jesus, so if you can imagine it, if Jesus is starting this new campaign, right? And instead of it being a Roman campaign or, you know, there was a lot of uh, folks that were committed to the Roman government, to their Hellenistic viewpoint, their Greek way of life. And then there's also all these Jews who are going, no, 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 we are, we are going to continue to, uh, you know, worship Yahweh. We're going to continue to follow all of his rules and try to meet the checklist. And we're going to demand that everybody see the world the same way we do. So you, you take your Sabbath, you do these rules, you tuck your shirt in, you eat these things. Don't you dare eat these things. And there are these two places and these two groups of people who were trying to really, really, really argue that their way was the right way. Right one, you could say, was trying to hold on to the conservative values of, of Israel. In fact, this is going to offend you. But literally, part of what they're doing is saying, we want to make Israel great again. Right on the other side, you have these Greeks who are pushing forward this progress, this progressiveness, this enlightenment. And so on both sides, there are these people drawing the lines of the sand, going, no, we do it this way. In the middle of all that going on, Luke is going to point out that Jesus came to establish a kingdom unlike any other kingdom. And it's not anything that you would expect. So people lay down their lives with their friends. As people who have much, give it away. And yet they hold tight to the commitment that God gave them to life and family and marriage, right? So they were exceptionally generous, exceptionally brave, and exceptionally committed to following the ways of God. And so Jesus is coming to reestablish the kingdom that was set up in the very beginning of time. The one that he said we could pray for, that we should pray that our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, and that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you can imagine that these two different sides, you got the Greek side and you got the Jewish side who are trying to force their kingdom to fit into the world and somebody else, they should participate in their kingdom in the way that, by which they think they should. Then all of a sudden, Jesus kind of steps in and he establishes a, a new kingdom. Is a third-party candidate. So I thought what we do to kind of start this is we're going to finally today, for the first time, right? We haven't seen many of Jesus' words. We've seen uh, him be born. We've seen all the declarations and promises of the Old Testament of promises that God would one day rule and reign and establish his kingdom. And now we're seeing that being fulfilled in Jesus. But we haven't actually really heard many of his words. We actually haven't heard him speak very much. In fact, if you were with us last week, we actually saw Jesus kind of disappear for 40 days, right? He goes out into the wilderness to be tempted, right? So the genealogy ends with, and uh, Jesus comes from the son of man, the son of uh, Adam. We know the story of Adam who was tempted and failed, and now we see Jesus go and that live a different way, defeats the temptation, overcomes it, and now finally, 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 he's in his 30s, and he's about to start his campaign. So what I want you to imagine is what it'd be like for Jesus to um, be in starting his campaign in 2020, and we're within the last two weeks, right? Last 10 days of the election. So this is when all the nastiness comes out. 
This is when the attack ads actually really start. So imagine that Jesus were running for office today and imagine the kind of ads that'd be playing about Jesus. So instead of you having to imagine it, we'll show you one. We made one. This is not real, but here you go. He takes water and turns it into wine. Alcoholic. He brings men back from the dead, stealing jobs from doctors. He took one meal and evenly distributed it among all the people. Socialist. People use his name to exercise demons, putting hard-working American demons out of work. When we reached out to Jesus for a comment, he sent back a dove. What does that even mean? Is this who you want running our country? Wake up, America! I thought it was funny. Um, this is where I kind of miss a full room. You know, there's not much laughter in here. I know it's not fun to laugh in masks, but I do miss that, guys. Y'all could be more generous with your laughter if you'd like. But so Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom. And so what you're going to see today, really, really important, is he is going to present to us his stump speech, right? If you're wondering what Jesus' platform would be, and this isn't a joke. This is real life. He, you're going to see Jesus' platform, so different than the platforms we have right now. Jesus' platform, and what's so crazy, is it's not like Jesus just all of a sudden came up to, with this 2,000 years ago. He's literally, his platform has been established since the beginning of time. In fact, God proves that his platform has been established since the beginning of time because he used prophets to remind people of the promises that God said he'd do through a Savior, a Messiah. So what's going to happen now is Jesus is going to remind uh, the people, uh, timely, meaning that the, the Jews and the Greeks right there in that day, the Romans, of what his platform is, what it is he stands for. And he's going to use writings from 700 years earlier, a guy named Isaiah, a prophet who would declare what God was up to and the way that, by which we should live, right? So he's going to use this prophet Isaiah, and he's going to make this declaration, and we can see what his platform was, figure out how we participate in his platform, all sorts of stuff. So here it goes. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And now, finally, we're going to see Jesus get to work. We haven't yet. He hasn't done anything. We, we've just been talking about him. Luke took literally almost three and a half chapters, lots and lots of words, lots and lots of words, to help us understand uh, what Jesus' platform is supposed to look like. Luke actually is going to write 1,151 verses about Jesus' life. And 568 of those are going to be direct quotations of Jesus speaking. Finally, we're getting some of those direct quotations. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit of Galilee. And the report about him went out through all the surrounding country. So what's about to happen is Jesus is now coming back into town. Now he's in Galilee. This is interesting because this isn't like the, this isn't the big, this isn't the big state, right? So our, our area, province, whatever term you want to use. You've got lots of them. The big one would have been outside of Jerusalem. That, that one would be Judea, right? This is kind of established that larger population. That's the people in the influence. That's greater D.C., right? And instead, he's going to start in this place, Galilee, this little redneck area with very little population. And he's going to start and establish his kingdom there. So it says that he's in Galilee. And now, all of a sudden, this word is spreading out throughout the surrounding country. So all of a sudden, this third-party candidate, this person is starting to show up, and people are starting to whisper about him and go, have you heard about this guy? Hey, have you heard about this guy? He's 
People are whispering and wondering if he's actually the fulfillment of the promise. We're wondering if he can make Israel great again. Hey, we're wondering if he could actually tell us what the, the purpose of, and meaning of life are. Wondering if he could convince Caesar and the Herods to stop persecuting and beating us up. Right? We're wondering if he could do that. And it says this, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is really interesting. So Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, and he's actually going to go into the little, little country churches. And he's going to start pointing out the scriptures and establishing his, his kingdom, establishing his ways, right? His word is a lamp to our feet, a light into our bath. He's going to start establishing those in all these little bitty country Jewish churches. So that's what Jesus is doing in the middle of Galilee. He's establishing this, and this is what it says. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up and read. Lots to discuss here, and we're going to read what he reads in just a second. But before we get there, I just want to kind of point out some things. So, um, Nazareth is where Jesus is from. This is where his daddy's from. This is where his mommy's from. This is, this is a little bitty, small town, hundred people kind of deal. Very, very small synagogue. And so, if you can imagine, Jesus has been traveling throughout um, Galilee, teaching his his word is a lamp to our feet, light to our path, right? He's teaching these things. And now, after he's done that from multiple places, he's coming back home, right? This is like if, um, if you follow any musicians, right? Any big musicians, they kind of have a home base, like where they're from. If that's Atlanta, not Nashville, that's where everybody goes, but that's not where they're from, right? Uh, New York, Pitt, Philadelphia, Newark, Delaware, wherever it is, right? When, when a band goes on the big tour, they kind of wrap up their tour. They typically start and maybe wrap up their tour in their, their hometown, right? That's, a, that's the biggest one of all the events, right? This is where it's their hometown crowd. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's coming back and finishing up his teaching tour at his hometown, right? So this is, now this would be a lot like right now, uh, if you're not familiar, maybe many of you are, uh, there's a World Series going on. People still watch baseball. It's crazy. I don't know how you have seven and a half hours to watch a sport. But a lot of people here watch baseball, particularly a lot of you are currently watching the World Series for just one reason. Joey Wendell, right? If you grew up in this church, you might know who Joey is. His family grew up here. Joey plays for the, uh, the Tampa Bay uh, Devil Race, right? Grew up just down the road here in Locust Ridge, right? And so this would be a lot like Joey coming back and playing a baseball game right out here in our softball field. Right, it'd be that kind of thing. No, by the way, uh, tonight is uh, the fifth game of the World Series. It's tied 2-2. Two to two. If you'd have watched last night, kind of a crazy ending where it looked like the Rays were going to lose. They ended up winning, so now it's 2-2. Two two, and tonight at 8 o'clock is game 5. Pretty, pretty big deal, right? And we're going to be showing it out in the parking lot. 8 o'clock, you want to come cheer on the Wendell family? Come here at 8 o'clock. The big screen will be up. We'll just enjoy a game together. Celebrate, like, right, the same kind of thing. This is a Joey's coming home. You know, he's coming to his church uh, just in the parking lot, but you come enjoy it with us. Really, really big game. By the way, Joey, I only pitched hit last night, so there's a real good chance that, because they went all left-handed uh, uh, batters in the lineup, but I, I have no doubt he'll be in the starting lineup tonight. It'll be fun to watch him play. And so come join us in that. But that's what Jesus is doing here, right? He's coming back to his hometown, and everybody's showing up in this little bitty tiny synagogue. You can guess that it's packed all of them hearing because news is spread about this guy. This is the hometown guy. This is Joseph and Mary's son. For the first 30 years, he just kind of followed his dad around and, I don't know, built some rocking chairs. And so now he's starting to teach. And so they're all showing up to pay attention. So he came, and then it says this. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Also really, really important. I want you to pay attention to this in verse 16. And was his custom. Um, this means something about Jesus uh, establishing that. Uh, church matters. This isn't any kind of propaganda or manipulation. 
but it's real easy in our world right now, guys, and many of us have gotten out of that habit. A lot of you online, thanks for joining us, but let's just be honest, it's hard to it's hard for me to stay dialed in online, right? Like, it's just hard to get connected and understand. We got masks and all sorts of complications. But what we can see here is there's something about keeping this habit, this rhythm that week in, week out, Jesus goes to this little country church, probably heard terrible teaching, probably had to hear someone preach way too long. You guys would have no idea what that's like, but he probably did at some point, right? And so week in, week out, Jesus, as it says, his custom was going in, in, in. Now, I just would argue this, right? Um, there's this book by Charles Duhigg called The Power of Habit. I'd recommend it to everyone. And so what, what he does, what Charles Duhigg does in the book, he, that there are what's called keystone habits. Keystone habits, right? And they're habits that change, um, Everything about your life, just by changing one little habit. And, and for example, and, and sometimes they don't even feel like there's a direct correlation. Like, for example, there is a habit that lowers teen suicide rates, lowers um, addiction rates, lowers teenage pregnancy rates, lowers violent rates, lowers incarceration rates for juveniles and people in their 20s. You want to know what it is? So crazy. It's just having di dinner together as a family. Families that sit together and have dinner, their uh, teenage pregnancy rates, their addiction rates, their high school dropout significantly drop just by that reason. Just, I mean, there's lots of reasons. We can argue all the reasons. But what he's arguing in the, in the book is he's saying, hey, look, there are just some habits. When you start doing it, it changes everything about your life. Right? Another one that they found was people who journal what they eat. Right? Just, I mean, not changing the way you eat, not... Um, uh, going low fat, high protein, keto, you know, whatever, whatever the, the thing is, Weight Watchers, none of those things. That people who just wrote down what they eat, ate were healthier, they exercised more, they ate better foods, because just when they wrote it down, it just made them more well. Where, right? It's just called a keystone habit. And so Charles Duhigg argues that there's some real keystone habits, just something you could change, something small. Another one that he says, and I don't agree with this one, but apparently he's right, I'm wrong. People that make up their bed every morning. There's something about that when you knock off that task list, so use that for your kids, whatever agenda you want, you can go read the book, that there is just some real effectiveness for that. So there's this, this keystone habits. I would just argue, guys, that going to church, sitting before God's teaching, opening up the scriptures, and hearing them read, and walking through them exegetically, expositorily, right, exposing the scriptures into our heart, there's something about that that transforms your families, transforms your life, transforms your outlook. So I just would say, the reason I'd argue is because literally Luke decides that it's important for him to go, as it was his habit. He's the king of the world. He's not going to get something good from the scriptures. He knows them all. He wrote them, and yet there's something about this custom of going week in and week out and sitting before God's teaching and God's word that was important to him. So Jesus, um, kind of a sad note, right? As was his custom— he shows up on the Sabbath day, and he stood up and read. So, he said, finally, 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 here we are. Lots and lots of weeks, lots and lots of weeks, four weeks in the series, 11, 12, 13 weeks before, so we're talking about months now. We're finally going to hear Jesus establish his platform. Ready for this? This is what it says. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So, what we see here is all of a sudden, Jesus stands up, Everybody's been whispering about him, talking about him, and all of a sudden, he's handed this, this book of Isaiah, right? This big scroll. So he's going to take this big scroll, and he's going to sit still, and everybody's wondering what he's going to do. Everybody's eyes are on him. They're going, what is he going to do? What's he trying to establish? What's he trying to say? And he's given this book. 
And what's, what's about to happen is he's going to unroll it and find a very specific place. And what he's about to find is um, Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. Now, I wish I could read all of it to you. I definitely wish I could sit still and read all of Isaiah 58 to you today. I don't have time. But if you come back on Tuesday for overtime or any time during the week, you will we'll sit still, and I promise you, we'll go through Isaiah 58, but there's so much to learn in it, right? So he's going to grab this scroll, and he's going to go open it up. Now, this isn't like, oh, he just flips to the pages. There are no page numbers. In fact, I, I'll show you a picture. Uh, this is what the Isaiah scroll looks like. Here it is right here. Got that? There it is. That's it. You can leave that up for a second. So uh, if you don't know anything about this, this is part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Long story short, 1946, some Bedouin uh, shepherds, nomadic shepherds, stumble upon the uh, Qumran caves, and they find all these, these documents, which have been analyzed. This is not fake or false. I mean, non-Christian, secular folks have done the carbon or whatever kind of dating to kind of identify this, that they stumbled upon this scroll, the full book of Isaiah, from about 300 years before uh, Jesus shows up. So 300 B.C. or B.C.A., depending on how you want to say that, before Common Era, before Christ, they stumble upon this. This scroll is about 10 inches, maybe 10 and a half, depending on the spot, and it's just tall, okay? And that thing rolled up is 24 feet long. 24 feet long. There's 54 different sections of Scripture on that. So Jesus would have grabbed this scroll. You get this? Grabbed this scroll, and he would have been handed to him. So every day, every time in the synagogue, someone would have stood up and read. And so Jesus grabs this thing, and he kind of scrolls through somehow real fast. The word scroll, right? Scrolls through real fast, and he goes exactly where he needs to go. And he gets it real fast, and he's going to read two different pieces, Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. So don't know much about Isaiah. That's fine. Um, but Isaiah was a prophet who came to declare that there was a coming kingdom in a way by which God was going to reestablish everything that he promised in the Old Testament. He's going to say, hey, everything that went wrong in this world is going to be made right through a Messiah. Now, the interesting thing about the Messiah that, that, that we see is particularly that they talked about the Messiah being a suffering Messiah. A Messiah, which is so crazy in typical worldviews, because this is the only place by which a God does all these things. That there would be a God who'd step down on this planet, and he would suffer. He would be one of us. He would put on human flesh, and he would take the pain for all people, right? And it kind of culminates in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, where it says, uh, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was beaten for our transgressions, right? And it says, by his stripes, we are, we are healed. So this is a guy, 700 years before Jesus shows up, who's going to make this declaration that there's going to be a Messiah, and he's going to declare what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to say, hey, he's going to be beaten for you. He's going to pay the price for you. This is so different than every other worldview. Every other worldview tells you you have to perform to get, make God happy with you. Our worldview, Christianity, throughout the Scriptures, says you can't perform well enough. And so if it's up to you, we're just all in big trouble. There's not a, no amount of laws you can follow well enough to make God happy with you. And that sounds like a really bad news. Unless God were to establish a way. So religion is man's attempt to get to God. Christianity is God's perfect attempt to get back to man, right? And so Isaiah 53, is the, and the book of Isaiah is declaring that there will be a suffering Savior who will one day show up. And he'll pay the price. And when he does, he will establish a new kingdom and he will bring healing to you, to your land, and to your world. And it won't be something in the far off distant future. It literally says, by his stripes we are healed. Meaning, meaning, pay attention to this today. That this healing is available not sometime in the distant future. It's available to you today. Pay attention to that work. We'll get back to it today. So Isaiah is this book about a suffering Savior. And then after it declares the suffering Savior, Isaiah then goes back and reminds people what's available to them. So if you get to the end of Isaiah 58 and 61, what we're about to read, it's all about this um, really interesting thing called the year of Jubilee. Okay, before we get in, I want you to understand what the year of Jubilee is. Um, 
So the way that it worked is God established rhythms, right? And even when he created the world, he rests on the seventh day. And so he calls people to Shabbat, or this weekly rhythm of rest. By the way, many of us live in disobedience to that. And I would argue that may be your first keystone habit is actually just stopping and pausing for a day so we wouldn't be as arrogant to think that the world needs us all the time, right? And so God establishes a weekly rhythm, but then he also establishes kind of a, 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 a yearly rhythm that every seventh year in the Old Testament, that land would be left still, right? So if you're, if you're doing harvest on a land on the seventh year, that you would let the land heal itself, right? And so there's this, every seven years, there'd be a time that an entire land would pause and find healing. You know, what's even crazier, though, that's just the part of the rhythm. But every seven times seven, so after every 49 years, something even crazier would happen. For the Jewish culture, in the year after 49 years, on the 50th year, everything would go back to this reset. So let's say uh, 20 years ago, someone had a dad who was addicted to some kind of drug, and he, he ends up um, leveraging all the family property for his habit, right? Or he makes this poor investment. And he leverages all the property to the point where he gives it away, you know, or, or gets a second, third, fourth mortgage, and then it gets bankrupted, and he goes foreclosed, and he loses the property. Every 50 years... There'd be a reset button. It's called the year of Jubilee. And the family would get the property back. Let's say you had lots and lots and lots of debt. Every 50 years, you would just get established as brand new. Everything was clean and clear. Let's say you're in prison or you were a slave. Every 50 years, there'd just be this reset button where everything would kind of be reset. Reset. And you go, well, see, people take advantage of that. That couldn't happen. And I'm like, yeah, we all would take advantage of that, which just implies how much we actually need it because of how broken we are, right? So the fact that we lean into the, just implies that we really do need some help, right? So every 50 years, there'd just be this reset button. It was a year of jubilee that the, the country, the nation, the people would all look forward to because finally they would be reestablished this hope, right? For 49 years, a family would live in slavery and impoverished and oppressed. And every 50th year, there'd just kind of be this button and everything would just go back and reset and start over. And so Isaiah was establishing that there is a Savior who's going to come establish that, and he was going to establish for us this year, this world of jubilee, the year of favor is how it's described, which it means God's grace to us. They didn't deserve it, but it, God would establish that. So what we're reading from Jesus is opening up this, this really, really big scroll, 24 pages long, and he goes right to a place where he's going to talk about what's going to be established in his kingdom. And again, he's going to use the word today. Really, really important. So he's going to establish in his kingdom. So he's going to tell us what his kingdom is supposed to look like. He's going to tell us how we should participate in his kingdom. So finally, 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 weeks and weeks and weeks, we're going to see what God's kingdom looks like. And here's the crazy thing. It's not blue or it's not red. And it's going to be something that all of us are going to be challenged to participate in. But this, in the year of Jubilee, here's what he is going to establish. So here he is. He opens it up. And it was written, so he's going to read one verse, and we're going to spend a good bit of time here. Here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So imagine this. Uh, Jesus has opened up and reading this, and this is something Isaiah is quoting God as establishing that one day there'd be a Messiah to do this. And all of a sudden, this little country town in Nazareth, Jesus is saying this, but he is saying it in first person. When Isaiah is writing this, he's saying that God will one day do this. Now all of a sudden, that's the day, right? So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So we're just going to stay on this verse for a while because this is a stump speech. If Jesus had a minute to acknowledge his um, platform, this is it. So you go, what did Jesus come to do? Well, he came to establish his kingdom. Well, how did Jesus come to establish his kingdom? Well, here's what it says. God sent him to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight of the blind. So the first thing you see here in the very first part of verse 18 is it says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Really, really interesting here, and we've seen this kind of start to show up in the scriptures where there's this God's breath is coming in on him. This is really important if you understand how the world began. God created everything and then he established, he decides to invite us into it, right? The, the big idea of the trini, tri, triune God is that he was perfect in all ways. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They were together. They had perfect unity, which is why Jesus prays for unity. And they had infinite unity and they had infinite love. And when you have infinite things, you decide what you got to do with it. Many of you decide if you have more than you need, you should share it. Right, so the triune God had more than they ever could have need for love, and so they decided to create an object, more than an object, a human, to, to pour out that affection on. And so on day six, God decides that this time, it says, let us make man our own image. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit come together with all their triune unity and love, and they establish a man. The way it is, there's this man, and he's without a soul. And he literally is laying like a clump of cells. No soul, no mind. And it's a dead before he is living. That's Adam, right? And it says that God breathed his life into him. That's the, uh, we got two different words we use in the New Testament. One is pneuma, meaning this fresh wind, right? And the other one is psyche, like psychology, this identity. So God breathes life and breathes an identity into Adam. In this moment, he's established as one of God's children who God loves. And so when it says the Holy Spirit the, the Spirit of the Lord was one of us going. He's going to breathe this new life into the world. So God came in to breathe. It was like we we're a bunch of dead clumps of cells. And God is about to do this. So the first thing you see here is it says the Spirit of the Lord was on Jesus. So Jesus came in, was breathing this new life, reestablishing an identity, right? Starting fresh and new. That's what we see here. And the next thing we see here is it says he anointed him. This is really interesting because. Uh, the Jews have been very aware of this, particularly in the book of Isaiah and also this, that anointing was always done for kings. So this is this divine kingdom anointing. So it says the Spirit of the Lord is going to be on him. Jesus is going, hey, that's me. And it's going to be anointed, meaning finally we're going to define him as the king and ruler. So this is where we see Jesus is established as a third-party option. This is the actual king. This is the actual ruler. So we see that anointed me to see this next word, proclaim good news. Now, I shared with you briefly a couple weeks ago that they would have understood this word good news a little different than we would have, that, that, uh, we do. It um, would have been used in a military sense. Let's say someone goes off to a battle and they take a thousand men with them, a hundred men with them, and they tell the rest to stay behind, right? You stay behind and um, we'll let you know if we need you kind of thing. And so they go off in the battle and the general off in the battle would send back a messenger to say one of two things. Hurry, come, save us, we're captured. Or, hey, there's peace and prosperity, and we've conquered, and we're victorious. That little bitty script they would have sent back to tell the, the nation that would be falling behind them, the, the, the soldiers that would be falling behind them, that word would have been good news. It literally was this declaration that there is victory, 
And there's establishment of a new territory and a new kingdom. So it's new territory is taken, right? And so when it says that Jesus came to establish a breath of him, that God's breath was breathing in him and then breathing out through him this new identity. And in that new identity, there would be this king that would come and establish. And what he'd establish is a new territory with peace and prosperity. So when it says he came to bring good news, that's what we're talking about. Good news. The gospel is good news that there is potentially a different way to live and a different way to experience life. And so Jesus is saying, hey, there's good news. You don't have to vote red. You don't have to vote blue. You don't have to put your hope in the next politicians. There is a better option, and it's good news. And so what's the good news? Who's it to? I want you to see this, guys. Really, really important. See what's to? The poor. Good news to the poor. That word literally means those who are completely desolate. They have no other options. And what I've learned is people who've been there. By the way, many of us haven't. Just, we just got to kind of establish that. Even, like, it's like my kids saying they're starving, right? No, they, they've actually never really experienced starving. But what I've learned is people have actually experienced being poor, who've experienced the pain and suffering of being completely desolate and without options. The way by which they respond to other people's being poor is much different than many of us do. Like, it's something many of us don't even understand or experience. And so you go, when Jesus came to establish his kingdom, who's the first primary target that he came to do? He came to meet those without any options. Now, this is both literally, there were people who were starving. And figuratively, the reality is no one in the kingdom really had good options here, right? There is no way they could get access back to the kingdom of God, right? They could not pay for it. They did not have options. They were bankrupt. They were desolate. And so when Jesus comes to do is he came to give them an option when they didn't have one. He literally came, by the way. This is where it says, by his stripes we are healed. This means that Jesus literally came to pay admission back for his people. So the first thing we see here is going, God cares deeply about the poor. Jesus' first move here, guys, was to care for the poor. Even the lazy ones. Even the ones you can that's their own problem, right? God still loves them and cares for them. And so what we see here is we can't ignore this. We can't turn our back on this. We can't, I'm not saying that I'm anti-capitalist or I'm for socialism. I'm actually struggle with all the above, right? But we do See, in the very beginning of this, when God comes to establish his kingdom, his focus is on people that are desolate, that literally have no options. They are completely lacking resources. So God's kingdom takes resources that we have and gives them to people without resources. We just have to acknowledge that. And it's a precedent in Scripture. So the first thing we see is that he came to bring good news, victory and hope and peace to the poor. So how do we do that? Really, really important. Right? Next thing it says is he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is really, really important because the word liberty shows up twice, but they're two different words. This first liberty literally means a pardon. What that means is he came to forgive all people. He came to kind of say, it doesn't matter what you owe. This is the year of the Jubilee. Oh, no, no, you're free. Come out of the jail cell, right? Now I'm going to walk free. You, no, 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 no. Don't worry about paying it. No, no. It's a gift. Here, take the gift. No, don't give me $20 for it. It's a gift. He came to give them a gift of freedom came to give them a gift of freedom. So Jesus comes to, to give people an option who don't have them, and then he came to give them freedom. And guess what? The fact that it means a pardon there means they were guilty. These are people who deserve to be punished, guys. People who deserved it. Right? These are people like you and I who have all of our brokenness and hiddenness, and they deserve to be punished, and God came to pardon them. 
So he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. You see that word captive there? It literally means the people are conquered. Those who felt completely defeated. So again, he's looking at the marginalized people and going, I came to give freedom, came to give you know, liberty to those who are captive. And so what we can apply here and understand is, first of all, the fact that their pardon meant they were found guilty. This is really important because a lot of times we, we use terms like such terrible and not in the scriptures, God helps those who help themselves, which is the last straight from the pits of hell, right? Like there is the idea that somehow we do the work and then God goes, oh, I'll help you because you're such a good boy. None of us are good, right? None of us are good, which is really helpful because when people say things like, I don't understand why bad things happen to good people, the reality is they don't. It's only happened one time in the history of the world. There's only one good person. That's Jesus, and he volunteered for it. So there is some relief in those things, right? Okay, we're all kind of in the same thing. But what we see here is that he came to, to give freedom and forgiveness to those who are captive. So we can understand this. This is probably some of their own decisions. Some of these people are actually enslaved because they had a problem with addiction. Or these are people that are enslaved because they did real poor with money. These are people that are enslaved because they had impulse control issues. Right? These are, these, are, these are not people who go, ah, you know, just hard on their luck. No, these are, these are people who intentionally made poor decisions that God still came to establish a year of jubilee for them. He came to free them. Right? So depending on how we view this, there are a lot of people that they don't deserve that. And the reality is they don't, but neither do we. And God came to set all of us free, give us all freedom, came to sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The next thing you see, see here is it says recovering of the sight of the blind. The word blind, um, it's the only time it's used in the, in the scriptures, and blind is used a lot in the scriptures. Jesus made blind people see. But this blind is interesting because it, it implies a, a, a blockage of a worldview, right? So what, it, what we see here, this isn't just literal, he couldn't see and now he can see. It was that his eyes were finally opened. So he came to unveil the curtain. He came to show them and establish a new worldview, right? And this is what's happened for many of you as Christians. You saw the world through one lens, and all of a sudden, God came and wrecked your heart and challenged your heart and transformed your heart and gave you hope and a freedom. And the way by which you view people is so different than you used to. Right? I hear it all the time. It's so interesting that someone will come and go, hey, I'm so glad that you teach the Bible this way because I didn't understand the scriptures at all. Now, all of a sudden, understand the scriptures, and I always go, well, that's really nice of you to think that I did that, but it's not that I did it. The same people 30 years ago were also opening up the Bible and teaching them. The only difference is God just kind of opened your eyes to it. Right? And so if you're able to see this and respond to it, it's a result of this, that God is opening our eyes to his world and his people, right? So at some point, at some point in the gospel transformation, eventually what will happen is your heart will be broken for the same thing God's heart is broken for. Which means you'll love people that are broken and poor, filled with sorrow. Right? Some of you may have, will have deep compassion for people that are on death are people who are hiding in alleyways and you're transformed from, well, they deserve it. They're so messed up. Yep, maybe, maybe fair. Your heart will be transformed. You go, no, no, no. But those people are loved by God. They're made in his image and likeness and God wants them to know him fully, right? There's something that happens when we get God's heart that all of a sudden our eyes are open. So God came to open our eyes so that we could see people the same way that he sees people, right? And so give sight to the blind. Now watch this. To set at liberty liberty again. Now this one's different. It has two kind of implications. The first one is to be set free. 
So this means, what you can imagine is that um, they were in a captivity. So this is more than just being forgiven. This is their actual application to it. That now they're set free. They're outside of their cave. Now, what's interesting is the way that it's actually defined is being set free by being set in. It sounds so weird in the Greek. You're going, okay, what? Set free by being set in. And so what, what it's saying here, when Jesus is quoting Isaiah, what he's saying is the way by which we're set free is by being placed inside of Christ. By his stripes we are healed. So when it says to be set free, the way that we're set free, right, is Romans. Romans 12, 1, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, for that's your spiritual act of worship, right? It literally means to be placed into Jesus, right? So when he says, I can do all things through or in Christ, it's this implication, that in this, Jesus came to set us free, and the way by which he sets us free is by taking us and putting us in him. That's why communion matters so much, because we're saying, God is in us. We are placing ourselves in him. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us, so we literally are taking his righteousness, right? It says he exchanged our filthiness for his righteousness. So when he says, hey, the way by which I set people free, actually take them and go, no, 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 no. You want to them, you got to come through me. Hey, God, if you see them, you got to see them through what I did. God, no, no, they're forgiven. No, no, you got to forgive Josh. No, no, I've already paid for this. And it says, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and unrighteousness, right? So he's going, no, no, no. The way by which we're set free is by being placed in Christ. So it says, set liberty, to be set in. The last one is that. To the oppressed. To the oppressed. The word oppressed there literally is... Um, it's like a, uh, it has the word shattered in it. So this just means people whose lives are completely broken. Completely shattered. Like this is Humpty Dumpty. All the king's man can't put him back together, right? This is shattered. Another way you can see this is just a completely devastated and broken heart. These are people who are incapable of putting their lives back together. And here's the reality. That's all of us. Some of us just haven't came to that conclusion on our own yet. So I told you, those who have actually experienced being really poor have a different experience and a different heart for people that are than those who have never had it. And so what this is saying is, hey, God came to literally set the people into him, to set them back right inside of him, those who are completely devastated. Do you see this? God's platform, God's kingdom is for the marginalized, for those who can't take care of themselves. Right? That means the baby in utero and it means the 90-year-old widow. That means the arrogant guy on Wall Street who believes that he has all of his life figured out, who's just one, one moment away from having police show up at his door and spend the rest of his life in prison. God came for those people, which is so interesting because we think about the kingdom and how we vote. It's almost always about what do we get out of it? How does this benefit me? Does this make my tax bracket go up or down? Does this mean I have more resources or less resources? Does this give me more freedom or less freedom? Do you see this here? When God came to establish his kingdom, he thought about those who had no freedom, and his whole kingdom was about imagining what the world could look like if they could get the same freedom that he has in Christ. And so when we look at how to respond to the kingdom, we have to ask the question is, how does this help those who cannot help themselves? Right? So the whole idea of the kingdom is taking our resources, taking our experiences, taking Christ, and applying those to those who are completely shattered. See this? So when we think about voting, it can't be, what do I get out of it? And that, in fact, you'll see it on, when I read Isaiah 58 to you on Tuesday, you will see that's actually how God responds. He goes, some of you fast, some of you do these things, but the reason you do it is for your own 
pain. Have you not? The reason I haven't responded to you is because this is still selfish. It's still about you. At what point does the church, at what point do you have my heart and mind and the things that break my heart also break your heart? That's what the kingdom does. So we have to establish it. I'm not telling you to vote red or blue. But we have to see what God's kingdom is. It's about, it's about giving a hand up and reaching out to all people across the globe. Right? About people who cannot speak to them for themselves. And see, many of you will read that as, well, we've got to stand up for um, babies who haven't been born yet. You're absolutely right. We should. Wholeheartedly. We have to feel deep conviction for that. Right? Because they cannot speak for themselves. But we also have to care for those people who literally are so addicted to opioids that they don't have any freedom, or uh, widows, or orphans. We've got to think about them all, right? We've got to think about the, the migrants or the immigrants trying to get out of the middle of persecution into our country, right? They're, they all are included, which means it gets complicated because red and blue is not solving all those problems. But when we see the kingdom established, it's all about Jesus going, I'm going to care for those who are oppressed. I'm going to go and reach out to the captives. And therefore, what you have to understand is we were the oppressed and captives. And if God has given us freedom, it's so that we can help, go help other people. Right? In fact, it says this in Galatians chapter, uh, in Galatians, I think in 5, it says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. You hear that? So why does God give you freedom? For freedom. Christ sets you free. So he gives you freedom. Why does he give you freedom? For freedom. So that you can participate in setting captives free. And I always want you to see this imagery. Think about it. You can get, go through any Disney movie, any movie where there's animals, right? You know how this works. There's a bunch of animals. You've got a bunch of animals. I've got them all over the place. And something happens. Cruella de Vil, you know, Rio, whatever one you want to get. The animals get captured and put in a cage. You see it? You got it somewhere. Maybe in the back of a van. Maybe they're in some warehouse. Everybody got the image. You've seen it somewhere in the movies. Now think about this. What happens in that? Eventually, one of them wiggles free. Right? You got the image? Whatever one it is. The, the animal gets out of the cage. Everybody with me? Now think about this. What does that animal do as soon as it gets out of the cage? Oh, it just runs off and cares about itself, right? Never. What does it do every single time? It goes and starts opening under other cages. You got that every single time. Right? Disney understands this. Universal Pictures understands this. Every time an animal gets freed, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. What is its response? To go and start opening other cages. So what happens is Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, comes to free us, and then what is our response? To go free other people. That's why abortion does matter. But that's also why sex trafficking really matters. That's also why immigration really matters, guys. And so it gets really, really complicated. And I promise you, I'll help you with that in just a second. So you see that he came to take care of those who are shattered. And it says this, to proclaim, this is verse 19, the year of the Lord's favor. To say, no, this is the year you get to enjoy God's grace. God comes to do all this stuff, right? So that we can actually experience and enjoy it. Now, this is really important because you got, you got righteous rich folks, and you got righteous poor folks, and you have unrighteous rich folks and unrighteous poor folks, right? Some people are poor because of the decisions they made. We still love them and care for them and want to help them find freedom. And some people are rich, and they are selfish and greedy, and God does not bless them. But there are others that God has established his rule and reign. So there's this one side, he's got the poverty gospel, right? That if God's giving you anything, you better not enjoy it, which I don't see in the scriptures. God wants us to use it, but there's something about enjoying the gifts he has. The other side is the prosperity, right? That God gives you all the things so you can enjoy them on your own and know the reality is somewhere in between. But what we see here in this moment is God does say, hey, I want you to experience and live in joy and grace. It is okay 
to enjoy the freedom God has given you. In fact, it's okay that God has given you resources and you can use them well and you shouldn't feel guilty about the resources God has poured on you. If God gave you wisdom and education, you should celebrate it and use it, right? So we are actually reading this because of this guy's resources. We're reading this because this guy made some wise decision with his money and he had some extra margin to invest in the kingdom, right? And so, so God is saying, hey, here it is. Now you get to experience and enjoy the Lord's favor. So what God wants for you, God wants you to be able to experience and enjoy his grace. God wants you to be able to walk in joy and peace now, right? And so how do we do that? And what does it look like to experience the Lord's favor and participate in all this? And watch what it says, verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. So he rolls this back up, sat down, and, all, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So all of a sudden, he reads it. And everybody just stares at him. No, he's going he's gonna, to uh, make one more statement. And I want to get to that statement at the very end. But you can imagine in this moment, all these folks in Nazareth, they didn't know what to experience, what to see. And he's coming to establish his kingdom. And so they're all sitting there and going, what does that mean? And so there's just this silence in the synagogue, right? And so what I want to do for a second is just kind of pause and go, well, what does that mean for us? If this is true, in light of all these things, in the light of uh, taking good news to the poor, seeing uh, freedom for those who don't deserve it, right? Pardon, setting captives free, taking care of those who can't see, giving them spiritual eyes. How do we actually do that in light of this current election? Right? And so I'm just going to talk big picture real quick here. It won't take me long. And then you're going to get to spend a lot more time on this. What I want you to see real quickly, and I, I took up all the other time because this isn't the important part. That's the important part. Right? I want you to see kind of how we can do that in this, this election. Right? So I'm just going to use the two big, big ticket people. Right? So you have, uh, and I didn't choose one to put on top of the other. So here. Now I'll switch it and I'll switch it back. There you go. Got it. Okay. They're all the same. Okay. So I want you to see both these folks. I want you to think about the platforms. Right? This is, this is important. And so when we, I, I, I really, um, indebted to this book by David Platt. I'd recommend it called Before You Vote. You can read it in a day. Before You Vote, he gives you seven questions to ask. But at the end, he offers this grid. And the grid talks about two very specific things, right? And so I want to make sure that we understand these two specific things. You've got biblical clarity, got it? And practical consequences. So when he says as we're uh, trying to figure out who to vote for, we've got to think about the Bible. What does the Bible say about it? Remember, we just talked through all that. All these things the Bible says about the platform that God has established. He wants to give freedom to the oppressed. He wants to take care of the poor. He wants to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. Right? Uh, when God gives that, we now have an understanding of the scriptures of what he came to do. And then, practical consequences, meaning what actually can happen as a result of this vote. Is there a person that can be established, red ticket, blue ticket, both, you know, macro at the highest level of our nation or micro at the local level of our nation? Is there some biblical clarity on different issues and is there practical consequences for them? So I tried to um, kind of gather all the different policies and issues, right? So I was going to go through them real quick, like one to be economic, right? Uh, for some of you, that's really important. Others would be environmental, right? Right, so you got that. Immigration, immigration. Another one. Got it. Uh, foreign policy. Uh, domestic policy, right? That would include all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, that would include education. Maybe gun control, right? Uh, criminal justice. All those there, right? And then uh, health care. Yeah, big one for a lot of you. 
Uh, social issues, really, 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 really important uh, for many of us. That's, you know, this is where abortion would fall. This is where sexuality and gender identity, this is where marriage would fall, all those things. Kind of in this, this social issue. This is religious liberty, right? Social there. And then the last one, which I think we miss sometimes, also just as important, personal character and morality. Got it? So all these, particularly, like some of the things I struggle with right now is some person came up to our house uh, to do some campaigning and my daughter's outside and they asked me who I was going to vote for. And I'm still praying through and felt like I know what God's called me to do but I couldn't actually say either one of their names out loud. Joe Biden or Donald Trump. That's good. Uh, and it's not like I'm against a third party Joe Jorgensen whatever. It's not that. I just don't know. But I couldn't say their names out loud. Because I didn't want my daughters to go, oh, he's voting for that person. And all of a sudden, now this person who I'm establishing as this leader of our nation, who I don't agree with all their morals, either side. I don't agree with their character, either side. I don't agree with their families, either side, right? And all of a sudden you have this, this thing. And so there is a pretty specific part of this going, we've got to think about all these things. We've got to think about what this person's behavior, or that person's behavior, what this person says or does, or that person says or does, or what their families do. All those things and how they reflect on our nation and on our children, right? That is a really important part. So we think about all these different issues and we go, in light of all these issues, how do we um, participate in pardoning the, uh, pardoning the oppressed? How do we participate in helping captives be set free? How do we help do all those things? How do we help recover sight to the blind? How do we think about how we can declare the goodness of the Lord to all people? And so now all of a sudden you think about those in light of biblical clarity. So we got all these things and so that, I just want to show you let me just pull out the, the hot button ones. Okay, um, Let's start with social. So this would be um, racism, uh, sexuality, marriage equality, uh, religious liberty. And uh, many of you view that and you go, well, there's a lot of uh, biblical clarity on that. Uh, we could argue, I would argue, that God defines, and, I, and again, please, 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 let me just give you an example. We'll just, let me get, yeah, in fact, let me just make this hypothetical. So that not all these are going to reflect my views, not your views. But some people would go, you know what's really important to me is marriage and family. Marriage and family are really, really important. Marriage and family are really, really important. I can see it established in Genesis chapter 2 that God established the family. I can see that it's important that human growth and development happens in the family. I can see all those things. And there is maybe you think one uh, ticket supports that. And you go, high biblical clarity, Right? High biblical clarity, marriage and family. High biblical clarity, religious freedom, right? So God talks about those things, and we've got to do those things. And then you go, okay, um, is there some actual practical consequences for that? Is, is it, does it matter who the next president is, right? Does it matter who, who, what SCOTUS uh, people they elect? And some of you might go, yep, yep, yep. I can see that this is the big issue. There's high biblical clarity. We've got to take care of it. And there's high practical consequences, right? This is the year. These are the two years that something really can change for this. This can go one way or the other. And you see that and you go... Okay, this is high biblical clarity. This is high practical consequences. And so you might see that in those ways. It goes, yep, I'm voting Republican because that's the ticket for it. And others of you might go, well, you know, one of the big social issues right now is actually racism, right? And there is a person who's really, really, in your opinion, right, declaring that racism is bad. There's a way by which we resolve that. And they're putting that on the forefront of the ticket. They're having conversations about reparations. And you have opinions. This is, let your opinions just sit for a second, right? You have all these different things. So racism is the main issue right now. And equality, inequality, regardless. I understand what the scriptures say. But how in the world can we see one person as viewed less than another person, right? And so you see those things. You go, yeah, there's real biblical clarity that God came to pay the price for all sin, he sees all people as equal underneath them for all sin and falling short of the glory of God. And yet God loves them all. And there are, there's a platform that holds human dignity. 
at a higher level. And you go, yeah, yeah. Some of you think that outside the womb. Some of you think it in it, regardless of your side. And you go, what's really, really important to me right now is biblical clarity. Yes, God wants us to care for people. And practical consequences. Yep, social really, really matters. That's really important to me. On either side, I can see where you could end up up here in that kind of depth. Now, others of you would go, well, immigration. Uh, well, the Bible says we should reach all nations. And uh, Does that mean we go to the nations or come to the nations? Well, I don't know that it's that high on biblical clarity. You might say, no, no, it's really, really high biblical clarity. Someone else would go, ah, it's right here. And to be honest with you, Joe Biden, some of you would argue, put, you know, had the same cages and the same issue at the border as Donald Trump does. So the reality is neither one of them are really going to do much about immigration. Maybe you think they will, right? So, okay, there's not, well, I think this is an important in terms of biblical clarity. The practical consequences is it doesn't really seem like much is going to change. Maybe that's where you land, right? And you go, healthcare, right? And you've heard stuff, well, uh, I really, really like my current healthcare plans. I don't really know what the Bible says about healthcare. Actually, my opinion is, is uh, I mean, scripturally, it seems like the church is the one who takes care of that. So I don't know that there's a lot of biblical implications of this. Maybe you think there are, right? And you go, well, okay, that would fall somewhere around here. Environment, oh, some of you would say, hey, God gave us this to take dominion over the world so you feel like there's this real responsibility to care for our kingdom. This idea that the coming kingdom is coming here, so you think you should rule and reign and establish it, and what we establish now is good for all eternity, right? So you might have real, real high biblical clarity, and you might go, yep, I don't want to, um, not only that practical consequences, one person is going to uh, do oil, the other is going to do solar, and you go, well, but the solar, and you got all these different things, you're working through it, and you go, I don't know where this falls for you. Maybe you think environment, uh, biblical clarity kind of falls, let's put it here, right? Now, another one would be economic. This is a big one, and you go, well, I actually don't mind being taxed high because uh, I, I, God give me more than I need and I don't mind them redistributing it. Okay, so you fall here. Biblical clarity, God wants to share. Maybe he wants to use the government to it. And others of you would go, absolutely not. I mean, I want to be generous. But why in the world does the government need to tell me how to be generous? I should be generous myself, right? And so if God, if I have more, more freedom, I have more margin, then I can use more margin to give to other people, right? Depending on which side you go, you fall in a different place. But you've got to figure out where this is. What does the Bible say about our economics? What are the practical consequences? You've got to put it on the grid. Now, another one would be domestic. Really, really important. Some of you have deep convictions about gun control on both sides. Right? Let me just be honest with you. Uh, this is a struggle. Because I couldn't shoot someone. I can't even come up with a reason in the scriptures why I would ever shoot someone. I'm not saying you shouldn't shoot someone because there's two different sides. There is this there are real consequences for sin, and there is a real need for justice. And you can read throughout the scriptures that God ordains killing in the Old Testament, right? So the New Testament, you go, well, that's different. And so there, there are reasons that you would land on different places in terms of biblical clarity. You go, nope, I should have the right to protect my family. Okay. This is to be honest with you. It also says in the scriptures, hey, if, God slapped, if you get slapped on the right side of the cheek, you should let, get slapped on the left, right? But then I go, well, depends. If it's just me, I can handle it. What if it's my kids? There's all sorts of complications, so I don't know where you fall in biblical clarity. Somewhere around here, right? But then you go, well, what are the practical consequences? You may think there are huge practical consequences here for whoever is elected for your, uh, maybe they'll take guns away or give you more guns or whatever it is there, and that's just one of the domestic issues. You may be really, really passionate about education. You may think it's the government's job to educate. Others of you may think the government is completely wrong for educating. And so there's some real practical consequences that, there. So maybe you go, well, it's not really, I don't see any biblical clarity, but I see real heavy practical consequences for it. And then you got some others, foreign. You go, well, I think we should care for all people. I don't know about biblical clarity. I'm not even sure what national poli foreign policy would do. And some, I don't know if you put all there, but you go here. Then you got this one, personal character. And you might say, 
well, God actually established the kings and the kingdoms, so you might not care at all. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was bad, uh, David was good, Saul was bad, and you go, that's just how it plays out. And others, you go, no, 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 no. God actually calls us to be the fruit of the Spirit. God calls us not to walk in pride. He says, pride comes before the fall, and you might go, I'm seeing some real pride in either, either ticket. And you can even see that there's some real pride. And you can see that there's some real practical consequences to whoever's chosen. You might put this way up here, right? So some of you might put the social way up here. Some of you might put the personal character way up here. Some might put the domestic way up here, whatever that is. And the reality is, there's going to be all these issues, and you're going to disagree with candidates and all the different stuff. So what I would point out is, I would figure out what the biblical clarity is around these issues. I'd figure out what you actually think are the practical policies, and you might go social, personal, domestic, those are my three. Those are my three. Those are the three that I'm focused on, I'm going after, and so you circle those three, and you start going through the policies, you start going through the issues, and you ask God to reveal to you who he thinks you should vote for in light of that. No, you're going to get everything you want? Absolutely not. But at least it does give us some kind of grid to go, this is where it is, and it might actually help you understand why someone else might view it from a, I do not want my kids to walk with this kind of leader or see those kind of things. You're welcome to think that. But you can also, I do not want the unborn to be sacrificed. You're welcome to think that, right? And you can go, what are the practical consequences for that? Is there actually something that can be done in the next four years as a result of your vote or the next two years as a result of your vote? And so you have all these different things, but you've got to think through two different lenses, biblical clarity and practical consequences. So you may vote different than I do. You might vote different than your spouse. But at least now, you're not just responding to the knee-jerk of the press and all the stuff they're saying. Instead, you're pausing and going, okay, God, what is it you're calling us to do? How do we go and establish these things? How do we bring liberty to the oppressed and the captives? And how do we establish those things? And what person, because of the Bible, and because of the practical consequences that they will actually do? Many of you are really thinking about the Supreme Court, right? So you sort through the practical consequences. Many of you are really thinking about the implications of health care or immigration. And so what do you do? What are the, what's the biblical clarity around what God calls us to do? And then what are the practical consequences? And if you can find areas where practical consequences are high and there's high biblical clarity, I would go, God, that's the place I think. I think that you should spend your time asking and discerning and seeking God so you can have a good decision about what it is you believe God's called you to vote for. Now, what I will tell you last, and some of you feel like um, because of the issues that you feel like the most appropriate thing you can do is not vote. No judgment there either. Now, I think there's some understanding that God has given us the freedom and the responsibility to vote. So I would argue voting is good. And yeah, God may very well tell you that the very best thing you can do is just not vote. That's up to you. What I'd say is don't respond in emotion. Don't respond in a knee-jerk reaction. Sit before the Lord. Ask him what the biblical clarity is. Ask him what the practical consequences are. And make your decision around that and nothing else. Here's the reason why. One day, guys, one day, for all of us who are Christians, you will stand before God on the things that he gave you responsibility for. You will give an account for what you steward. That's your kids, that's your job, that's your house. One day, for those of us who are Christians, right? One day you'll stand before God, and you will give an account for this. One of those things is your vote. One of those things is your vote. Now, here's the good news. Last thing I'll say so you don't feel the crazy pressure on this. What if I vote wrong? You can't vote wrong, okay? Here's what Matthew, uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. So the only thing I challenge you on is whatever decision you make, whoever you vote for, would you make sure your heart is pure 
in it. And I promise you'll see God in it. You can't do it wrong. Now, the big litmus of that is, as you vote, who are you casting your vote for? Is it for your own gain? Is it for your own? Because when you see what God came to establish in the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, what he came to establish was all about those who are marginalized. So the purity of the heart has everything to do with how you vote for those who are oppressed and those who are held captive. So if you have a pure heart in that, you will, according to the scriptures, either the scriptures are lies, which I don't think they are, you will see God, okay? So uh, what happens is Jesus rolls it up. They pause and sit still and watch what happens here. Verse 21, and it says this. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what's so beautiful about this is Jesus actually brings it and he says, here's the good news. This is available to you today. So here's what I want you to hear if you're not a Christian. This is available to you today, right? That Jesus came to establish a year of favor. You can be forgiven. You can be completely pardoned. You can walk out of here. You can walk out of your living room. You can walk out of your house right now. You can hop, you can drive out of this parking lot in your car and you can be perfectly made right before God because of what he comes to establish. And this is not something for the future. Right now, Jesus is offering you forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what decisions you've made. It doesn't matter who you vote for. Right? This day. Because what Jesus does, he is pierced for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities, and it says this, by his stripes, we are healed. So what does that mean? For many of you today, you can just accept what Jesus did for you and walk in the freedom of that. For the rest of us, right? So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? How do we respond? Your vote is the very tiniest part of how you respond. Because guess what? You can work on domestic issues and personal character issues and social issues and immigration issues and environmental issues and economic and foreign and healthcare. All those things right now you can go ahead and participate in. Right? You don't need to vote to go show people you love them and care for them. You don't need to vote to go participate in orphan care and adoption and taking care of widows. Literally, you can walk out of this parking lot, hop in your car, or you can walk down the road and you can start raking leaves in your neighbor's yard if no one else is doing that. Right? You don't, you don't need to wait till election day to participate in this. That's the tiny part. The real part is you get to participate in these things now. You get to go participate in setting captives free. Right? It's for freedom that God has set you free. In fact, this is what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, and the bands will come up, and we're going to wrap up with this. In the same way, let your light shine before men. So you're going, how in the world do people see God? How do we uncover the sight of the blind? The way by which people see is through light. Let your light shine before men so that they, all the people, your neighbor, your immigrant family, your co-workers, so that they, people on the other side of the aisle, so that they may see your good works participate in this. See your good works, and watch what it says here, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So today, today, you can participate in the kingdom, and what you can do is you can let your light so shine before men. You can care about other people, and here's what the scriptures tell us will happen. In the same passages by which he told us that if we uh, blessed are the pure in heart, for we'll see him. You can today start helping people that cannot see, see, and the way that you do it is letting your light shine before men. And so what God came to establish, and people were there, and we got to go, do we agree with it? And there's a way by which we get to agree. In the scriptures, there's this word that literally means, I agree, or so be it. And it's the word amen. So when we pray prayers, when we ask God to bring his kingdom to earth, and we say at the end, amen, what we're saying is we're in agreement that God has given us gifts, he's given us resources to go set captives free, to let our light so shine before men. So we're going to sing a song together, talking about being free and talking about so being and establishing God's kingdom. And so would you join me as we sing this song together?
is our prayer. That is our cry of victory, and that is something that we can celebrate no matter what happens in the next couple of weeks. We are free, amen, and we have hope because of what Christ has done. I want to just send you guys off with a quick benediction, but before I do so, I just want to remind you, if you have questions or uh, thoughts about anything that you kind of saw today or just um, uh, anything from the sermon, we really do invite you to join the conversation. We think it's an ongoing conversation. So if you're outside, online, or here today, go ahead and send your questions over time, and this Tuesday at noon, we'll work through that stuff. But let me send you guys off with this. The peace of God be in your heart. The grace of God be in your words. The love of God be in your hands. And the joy of God be in your souls. Amen, everybody. Thanks again for being here, and we will see you next week.